So it's a beautiful day, and I want to thank you for joining me on this edition of Your Rancher Radio. And if you've noticed over the past few episodes, there seems to be sort of a string of topics having to do with a general theme of taking a look at things that are going on currently in our society having to do with religious persecution, uh, totalitarianism, uh, secularism. That seems to be a, a running theme. And indeed, that may be the very reason that I have been prompted to produce these podcasts, because these are the current times. And I've, I've long held that the Arantia book was delivered in this time for a reason. There was a message that they felt, the revelators, we needed to know. And that's why the book appeared not during the technological age, but just prior to that age. It would have been far easier for them to deliver the book in some form through the technological age. Distribution would have been a cinch, would have been a snap. I can produce a podcast that can be heard around the world in five minutes. But they chose to do it at the time that they did for a reason. And one of the things that I felt is if you look at paper 195 in the book, it's the second to last paper of the Arantia book. Paper 195, it covers the period from the time after Jesus' death, after Pentecost, up to today. Through the modern times, it reflects upon how the message of Christianity has survived through the ages and also the impact that it has and continues to have and will continue to have in the future. But in a chronological sense, paper 195 is most interesting because it does go through the what are 10 chapters, each detailing a timeline from right after Pentecost and the Greek influence on the spread of Christianity, the Roman influence, and then what happened not only during the Roman Empire as Christianity continued to spread, but also down through the European Dark Ages being, as it were, contaminated by many of the pagan cults that plague Christianity today. Then in paper 195, Chapter 5, the revelators give us a good hard look at the modern problem. We are in a modern progressive age and yet our religious and spiritual ideas and principles are still very rooted uh, in ancient times. So it talks about the dangers of materialism, the vulnerabilities of materialism, how materialism can undo uh, a lot of the great principles that spirituality can bring to us. It also talks specifically in uh, paper 195, chapter 8, it gives us a warning of secular totalitarianism. So it actually warned us in 1942, when this book was finally typeset and ready for print, it warns us about the different phases of humanity that we are even now in and what we can expect if the trends continue. So it goes into great depth about secular totalitarianism and its root, what caused secularism and the continuing negative harmful effects that secularism will have on society. Okay, I want to pick up on a particular chapter since I brought your attention to this paper 195. This is paragraph 8, if you will. It reads, At the time of this revelation, the prevailing intellectual and philosophical climate of both European and American life is decidedly secular, humanistic. For 300 years, Western thinking has been progressively secularized. Religion has become more and more a nominal influence, largely a ritualistic exercise. The majority of professed Christians of Western civilization are unwittingly actual secularists. It required a great power, a mighty influence, to free the thinking and living of the Western peoples from the withering grasps of a totalitarian ecclesiastical domination. Secularism did break the bonds of church control, and now in turn it threatens to establish a new and godless type of mastery over the hearts and minds of modern men. 
the tyrannical and dictatorial political state is the direct offspring of scientific materialism and philosophic secularism. Secularism no sooner frees man from the domination of the institutional church than it sells him into slavish bondage to the totalitarian state. Secularism frees man from ecclesiastical slavery only to betray him into the tyranny of the political and economic slavery. And see, that's what times we're in right now. That's probably the only section of the book that actually deals with this particular age and and what many of our social ills are derived from when it describes this tyrannical and totalitarian stage of existence, all we need to do is look around. Look at what's happening in China. Look at what's happening in Venezuela. Look at what's happening with this push towards uh, Marxism and communism uh, to free ourselves from the bondage of the church to be sold over to the state. It doesn't sound like a very good deal to me, and yet here it is in paper 195 describing the very thing that is happening in our world. As it continues on, it says, Materialism, which is what the age we are in now, denies God. Secularism simply ignores Him. At least that was the earlier attitude. More recently, secularism has assumed a more militant attitude, assuming to take the place of a religion whose totalitarian bondage at one time resisted. And now here's the most important part of this, and this is what I want to address and what I've been trying to address in the previous podcast as to the dangers of secularism and why we can never hope to have peace and harmony in society based solely on the idea that men can just get along. And here's what it writes, and I'll leave you with this. And remember, this is a part of the book that deals with the here and now, the current stage of humanity. Secularism can never bring peace to mankind. Nothing can take the place of God in human society. But mark you well not to be quick to surrender the beneficent gains of the secular revolt from ecclesiastical totalitarianism. Western civilization today enjoys many liberties and satisfactions as a result of the secular revolt. The great mistake of secularism was this. In revolting against the almost total control of life by religious authority, And after attaining the liberation from such ecclesiastical tyranny, the secularists went on to institute a revolt against God himself, sometimes tacitly and sometimes openly. To the secularistic revolt you owe the amazing creativity of American industrialism and the unprecedented material progress of Western civilization. And because the secularistic revolt went too far and lost sight of God and true religion, There is also the followed and unlooked-for harvest of world wars, and it says it is not necessary to sacrifice faith in God in order to enjoy the blessings of a modern secularistic revolt. Tolerance, social service, democratic government, civil liberties. It was not necessary for the secularists to antagonize true religion in order to promote science and to advance education. And then it concludes, without God, without religion, Scientific secularism can never coordinate its forces. And that's basically where I want to leave it today and why it's been with such great emphasis that we've tackled and explored these issues. Because I have it in my mind that from paper 195, I gleam it to mean that we have to get through this period in order to get to the other side. And that's where I'll leave it today for you. Thanks again for joining us on Your Rancher Radio, the podcast. 
Welcome to Highlights on Urantia Radio. This time up, we want to talk about modern-day persecution because I've been reading up more and more, and I'm frankly quite concerned, and I'm hoping to share some of this with you because as a Urantian, as as a fellow believer, we have to be aware of what's going on around us if we're ever going to be able to do anything about it. So let me relay some information to you based on a report that I had the opportunity to review, which says that over 250 50 million Christians were targeted for persecution last year around the world. Christians make up 80% of all the religious persecutions, uh, according to a recent study commissioned by the British government and conducted by the Catholic Church. The FCO report was chaired by the Bishop of Truro, retired Reverend Philip Mont-Stephan, and it focused on the several regions of the world specifically where persecutions of Christians are most intense, notably Iraq, Iran, Nigeria, China, Indonesia, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka. But Mont-Stephan says the scope of the report doesn't include dozens of other countries where Christian persecutions also occur. He affirms that the report is meant to emphasize the human rights abuses which face all people of all faiths who are entitled to freedom of religion and belief, uh, as has been agreed to, by the way, as a core human right by all nations under numerous charters, agreed to by global parliaments, members of U.S. Congress, and members of the U.N. General Assembly. And yet, these abuses continue. ISIS and Boko Haram are perhaps the most vicious, but China is also a major oppressor of religious rights, as is Pakistan and most of North Africa. The report is a call to all people who believe in God. There is no greater sin than to oppress or to bring harm upon someone simply because they want to exercise their rights to worship or to gather in fellowship to worship. What is happening to Christians now is happening down the road to all faiths. As Mount Stephan writes, religious rights are fundamental to all other rights, the rights of conscience, the rights to free speech, etc. The report says it is not the condemnation of Islam, but those radical factions of Islam which have most certainly participated in the extermination and racial cleansing in many Middle East regions. But the scope of persecution extends to non-Muslim countries like China, North Korea, and until recently Cuba, where atheistic governments seek to remove religion because of its threat or perceived threat to state power. To put things into perspective, right now one-third of the planet's population of believers are being persecuted or oppressed. One-third. But we don't hear about it because we live in America, where we're not being oppressed. Now, if you really don't care, you should, because oppression always starts with others until it becomes your problem. The fact that Western media doesn't cover it is predictable. We suffer from what Montstuffin calls post-colonial guilt. Everyone has the right to the freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. This right includes freedom to change his religion or belief and freedom either alone or in community with others and in public or private, to manifest his religion or belief in teaching, practice, worship, and observance. That is the universal declaration of human rights. As a Urantian and from a historical perspective, I find it shameful that this is occurring at a time when so much technology and inventiveness has raised the standard of living for so many millions of people. 
but I also find it shameful that the people who have most benefited from the concepts and charters of liberty are the ones who can really do something about it, and they remain silent. This is an excerpt from a recent interview posted on Epic Times from a man by the name of Bob Fu, who's been fighting for human rights and freedom of religion in China for 20 years. Uh, when I realize uh, those uh, people of faith uh, and uh, the, those uh, human rights lawyers, uh, when they were just trying to exercise the most basic fundamental rights uh, for freedom of religion, the uh, press freedom, the basic rule of law, and they were subject to from uh, harassment to uh, torture to imprisonment. And, you know, as a, really uh, somebody, uh, people of faith, as a, somebody we cherish the freedom, how can we uh, be silent in the face of this kind of evil? So as we wrap things up on this edition of Highlights, looking at modern-day persecution, I'm reminded of previous episodes where we've said, during these contentious times, you've got to take a side. See you next time on your Ranter Radio. One in every three Christians in Asia are suffering from a high level of persecution. The report says there have been increased efforts by the government to eliminate all channels for spreading Christianity. The report also highlights the continued persecution of Christian minorities in Afghanistan and Pakistan, which are predominantly Muslim. So this time up, I want to talk about the great ideological struggle. Now, I've spoken to a lot of the uh, Urantia book readers, people that go back to the, even to the original times before the book was published. And um, one thing that comes up is this this term ideological struggle. People ask, well, the Urantia book seems like it's just a little bit too far ahead of, of what's going on in our world today. And that's why a lot of people don't read it or know about it. And people say, well, that's because we're going through an ideological struggle. And the revelators, when they were communicating with Dr. Sadler uh, in the 20s and 30s, would say things that there's a great ideological struggle going on. And that once that is resolved in humanity, then the Arantia book will be seen uh, with greater reception. So what is the ideological struggle? Well... I, I am firmly convinced that right now the great ideological struggle of the modern age is between faith and secularism. Uh, and it's between those who hold these truths to be self-evident, that man is endowed by a creator, and those who simply believe the world is what we make it. We are simply human beings who we are born, we live, and we die. And that everything is really just about the society in which we live, and that we look to scientific materialism for all of our answers. The ideological struggle really is between faith and secularism. So at the root of Western society at this point uh, is this strange idea 
that individuals have liberties. These are God-given rights. Those rights include the right of self-expression, the free exchange of ideas, the free ability to congregate, even protest, protest the government, freedom of movement, freedom to own property. These are all rights that only in in recent history, uh, and these rights basically are are, uh, founded upon the principles of Judeo-Christian values and other values, uh, certainly cultural values that have evolved. Uh, But in secularism, which is sort of this new way of society running itself, which is only recent, is that there's the notion you serve the state and the party for the greater good. And that greater good is determined by those who are in power. So, you know, you could say that communism has its roots in secularism. Communism would probably not allow religious people because religious people would never submit to the state. They would save that for God. I mean, they were having this discussion, you know, when you remember in the biblical story when the, uh, I think it was a Pharisee came up to Jesus and handed him a coin and said, you know, where are your loyalties? Who do you serve? And trying to entrap Jesus and said, well, you know, render that as what is man's to man and what is that as God's to God. And so he basically uh, said that religious people are people who serve God. But in a secular society, you're not really supposed to serve God. You're supposed to serve the state. And this is why China doesn't allow formal religion. It usurps authority away from the state. Religion does. So socialism, which is an offspring of secularism, is a godless world order, a godless ideology. And communism derives itself and gets its authority from the fact that if you have members of your society and they're not religious, well, then who do they give patronage to? Who controls them? And that would be the state. So in that scenario, the individual only matters in proportion to the group. And that's why you hear about so-called universal rights instead of human rights, group rights as opposed to individual rights, group sovereignty instead of individual sovereignty. And so sadly, millions of Americans today actually like this social construct in theory And I believe one of the reasons that people are attracted to secularism or socialism, democratic socialism, whatever you want to call it, is because it removes responsibility from the individual and and moves it over to the collective. So the individual no longer needs to use judgment. He simply needs to agree with the majority, the social order, and only needs to agree that whatever is best for the greater good determines whether something is good or bad. And this is why Chinese government or totalitarian governments can remove citizens who they deem to be the enemy of the state. In the secularist worldview, human rights do not come from God, they come from the state or the government. And the danger that I see right now going on in America, or even in the West, particularly in Europe, is that secularism, which has been around now for, you know, two, three hundred years, our educational system is completely secularized, There are advocacy groups that are going to major extremes to remove religious symbols, uh, history uh, from the state, um, and federal buildings as well. So holidays that were once rooted in religious culture have been secularized. And the reason they've been secularized is because we've given the state the power to determine which holidays we celebrate and which ones we don't. 
So Easter, Easter now has become spring break. Christmas, we call it winter holiday. And even Thanksgiving has been thoroughly secularized and pretty much commercialized. So the religious element has been completely removed. So now we're face to face with secularistic science. It tells us that religious concepts, for the most part, are just based on myths, a need for man to explain his existence. And so science disregards the fact of the reality of the existence of God and asserts that we simply exist as a result of random causation, cause and effect, that according to science there is no discernible divine hand, the good and evil are just relative values that we've invented as mere labels to assign people who are probably just disabled or suffering from mental illness. So so people of faith in this secularistic world are labeled intolerant or weak-minded, prejudiced, biased, unscientific, uh, and then to the extremes, homophobic and even racist. Religion in a secularist society is marginalized, and we see it going on around us. Part of the problem is that modern society struggles with religion because we're, you know, several generations into a culture that has accepted the notion that science explains everything, that religion is nothing more than a a custom, old belief systems that developed before science could answer our questions. So, you know, in the secularist world, religion is more of a custom, something just to make people feel good. And in the meantime, people have faith. Uh, They believe in God. 90% of the world believes in a deity, in a supreme being. We pray, we worship, we feel the experience of religion. And and, uh, the Arantia book tells us this is a real event, that the feelings we get for spirituality are not psychologic projections, as it says in paper 196. It says that those thoughts come from God because the Spirit of God is in our mind, and that's a reality that science doesn't allow for because it can't prove it. There was a report out, I think I read it in Breitbart not long ago, where this uh, psychiatrist trained at Italian Institute of Technology has surmised that through electroshock therapy, she can remove hatred, bias, racism from the human consciousness. So how long do you think it would be before that kind of approach would be used to alleviate people from their religious fears or for their belief systems? Now, if we look back, history tells us that religion is good for society for a bunch of different reasons, namely because they uphold moral and ethics from one generation and make sure that they get passed along to another. But it's also more important because religion within the family instills family values and loyalty and discipline, and those are the characteristics that lie at the cornerstone of a solid, solidly rooted society. But there's also another aspect to religion that very rarely ever gets talked about. And it's about salvation, the furtherance of existence beyond our mortal estate. So life after death is so foreign now in our discussions that people in Western culture don't even talk about it. It's a very personal thing and nobody likes to talk about it because it sounds like a myth. And this is what you get after 300 years of secularism in modern culture. So paper 195 of the Arantia book really deals with secularism and the dangers of it, and they very clearly point out that uh, society uh, cannot survive with just secularistic ideals. There has to be a recognition of a greater source, a spiritual source, that without God, society eventually disintegrates because it doesn't mobilize the forces of humanity. 
with secularism, we simply go from being a slave to the church to being a slave to the government and to political tyranny. And we're seeing this played out in the modern world. In 1935, we're warned that terrible destruction is to come. And what happens? World War II, you know, seven years later. And then 100 million people die after that because of secularist, tyrannical, totalitarian governments in Russia, China. We see it further played out in places like Cambodia, Cuba. Now we're seeing it in Venezuela. Secularism run rampant through communism. Universal rights take the precedent over individual rights. That's what secularism does. Those are materialistic principles. Personal individual rights, uh, the endowment of, of our Creator, that's a spiritual principle. So here's my call to people who aren't necessarily religious. Uh, I understand if, if it doesn't mean anything to you, if you think faith and believing in God doesn't matter, but that's not the kind of world you want to live in. You do not want to be in a global society that turns its back on spiritual ideals and truth. That would be China, a total surveillance society where anyone who dissents is put to death and there is no moral judgment. In a secularist world, say goodbye to freedom of thought, freedom of expression, maybe even freedom itself. These are spiritual principles because they give account to enduring principles, fairness for the individual, who, again, is endowed by God. That's the essence. That's the great ideological struggle, whether we believe in secularism or if we hold on to the essence of faith, human dignity, the soul, and life ever after. So I'll just end it with this. The point of all of this is that I do believe that this current ideological struggle is being waged as we speak. We're seeing it be played out in China between Hong Kong and the protesters and the Chinese government in America. We see it being played out between the progressive left and the conservative right. We see it being played out in Europe between the globalists and the nationalists and in England with Brexit. Nationalists who are losing their rights for the greater good of the globalists or the secularists, and even in some countries in the Middle East, we're seeing this played out between secularism with Islamic reform, as in Saudi Arabia and Iran, and oppressive regimes that still march to the medieval trumpet blast of religious tyranny, not unlike we saw in the early Christian church. So here we have it, the great ideological struggle is all around us, and we're right in the middle of it. And it is stated, crisis comes before destruction as well as growth. So which outcome will we choose? And that is the subject of this week's highlights on your Rancher Radio, The Great Ideological Struggle. 